Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Assistant Professor of Classics Joe Howley's book, All the Skellius and Roman Reading Culture, Text, Presence, and Imperial Knowledge in the Noctus Atticae. First, we'll hear Joe speaking about his book at the panel, and later, we'll hear my interview with Gareth Williams, Violin Family Professor of Classics at Columbia University. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Thank you to the Heyman Center for um, putting this together. Um, uh, it's, really, um, it's really an honor and a pleasure to, to have um, our work as junior scholars uh, be kind of foregrounded like this, and um, it's, uh, it's a real delight. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, what can one say to introduce a book uh, that one has been working on for <clears throat> 10 years of one's life? Um, uh, I've been advised to say a few words about how I got into this mess. And um, uh, I suppose as with, um, you know, I, I gather there's a kind of crystal clarity that attends recollections of all calamities in their initial moments. Um, I have a, a very clear recollection of... Um, uh, sitting in the library in the School of Classics at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, which is where I went to graduate school, um, while two of the most distinguished uh, Roman historians on the island, um, Jill Harries and Christopher Smith, uh, debated what I might be interested in, as if I were not there. Um, and um, uh, one of many things to recommend Jill Harries as a scholar and as a mentor is that she always knew exactly what I needed to read at any given moment. This is... Um, an ability that I really aspire to, now that I'm a professor myself. Um, but I, I, she turned to Christopher and said, uh, you know, he might like Aulus Gallius. And um, Christopher said, yes, I think he might. And so I was about to go on a train journey, so I brought um, one of the volumes of the, the Loeb Classical Library of Aulus Gellius. Uh, still the only way to read him in English, although the translation is now 100 years old. So if anyone wants to talk about um, pitching translations to major presses, please talk to me afterwards. But uh, I, read this, I read this in Latin and in English on the train, and um, uh, was immediately struck by um, the rich texture uh, with which Gellius talked about his, um, his experiences basically in and around libraries and learned salons in Antonine Rome. And in fact, I was so sure uh, that, um, that this text was so obviously interesting that this must have already been written about that when I got back, I sort of dejectedly paged through the bibliography on Gellius, which was very limited, and discovered to my surprise that no one had written about this aspect of the text, basically. That um, Gellius really was, and I, I uh, joked for a while that the cover of the book would have a little decal, you know, like those decals that say, as seen on TV, that would say, as seen in footnotes. Um, because this is where one encounters Gellius in classical scholarship. Um, he's cited as a uh, you know, source for fragments and details and lost uh, you know, trivia from otherwise lost texts. Um, and this is indeed what he provides us. In about 400 essays of varying length and varying genre, he um, recounts his reading and his experiences of talking about his reading and remembering and failing to remember his reading in different uh, social environments in Rome and Athens and their environs in you know the middle to the late 2nd century CE. Um, and it turns out that all of these fragments of otherwise lost texts and bits of trivia and passing observations on great luminaries of the age, like Fronto, the tutor to the Antonine princes, whom Gellius claims to be an intimate of, although he appears nowhere in Fronto's own correspondence except as a minor irritant. <laughs> um, 
uh, all of these recollections for which Gellius has been mined are surrounded by really dense layers of narrative about what it means to know these things and the context in which he came to know them and came to recall them. Um, and so it occurred to me that there was actually a lot of reading still to be done in this text. Um, reading not of the things that Gellius himself was reading, but reading of the things that he actually wrote, of the stories he was telling about the intellectual milieu of Antonine Rome and indeed Athens. Um, why is it that Gellius remains unread um, or you know, largely unread? I think there's a variety of reasons, some of which I, I talk about in the book. Um, uh, one is you know, his form. He offers us what is still referred to more or less as a miscellany. It's a compendium of short essays. And although we're very comfortable with poetry collections in the world of classical literature, and we're very comfortable with collections of short prose when they're called epistolary books, um, when they don't have any of those genre signifiers, when it's just a bunch of essays, we don't know what to do with it. And I think that inability to slot it into one of our traditional genre categories has um, disinclined people to look seriously at the text. Um, you know, it's also for imperial literature, a little frustrating of, of our uh, appetites and desires as classicists. So, you know, in Roman literature of the imperial period, we really like to find the emperor, or failing the emperor, at least the senate, um, perennial antagonist of the emperor. Um, and Gellius refuses to tell us about the emperor. In fact, Gellius uh, seems to go out of his way to create a world and to represent a world that exists in the absence of political figures, and especially in the absence of politics per se. So when we see major political figures like Herodes Atticus, um, he's kind of off the clock. He's at leisure. He's in his country estate. And we have uh, entire scenes you know, in proximity to the imperial court that reach their narrative conclusion when the emperor enters the room. So I think there's actually a persistent interest in this text in not dealing with this figure that classicists um, you know, I think Romanists, uh, I can't prove this, but I get the sense that many Romanists um, fixate on the figure of the princeps and the idea of the principate, you know, the institution of one-man rule at Rome, and try to find that in the literature of the imperial period because we think of it as one of the defining aspects of culture of that period. What Gellius tells us is that for better or worse, if you're a member of the, um, you know, leisured, lettered elite, it's entirely within your power to essentially pretend that political realities are non-existent and to create a world for yourself independent of that. Um, another reason that I think Gellius is unread is that he, um, he is sort of an exponent of the, the Latin equivalent of something in the Greek world we're not supposed to call the second sophistic anymore. This is the, the literary movement of the imperial period uh, in Greek literature that's characterized by a kind of dense um, stylistics and emphasis on uh, performative rhetoric and oratory, and a real obsession, a fixation in, in Greek culture with the world of the Greek past, particularly the Attic past. This is sometimes sort of simplistically um, imagined as the time in which Greeks under Roman rule tried to imagine themselves back into a heyday of Greek independence um, uh, by talking and um, reading like they imagined the Greeks of, you know, the fourth, fifth, fourth, third centuries, even BCE. Um, Gellius is friends with these kinds of Greeks. He knows these kinds of Greeks. And he's also doing something very similar with his Latin. He's really fixated on the Latin of the Roman Republic two and three centuries earlier. Um, this, to me, seems like the most pointed political project of his text. He's interested in a, a canon of Latin literature that 
um, very suspiciously ends right when the Republic falls apart and the Principate begins. Um, this is a stylistic m movement in a Latin literature in the imperial period that even the emperor participates in from time to time. Uh, and I think we're still waiting for a good explanation of the politics of this stylistic imagining of yourself back before autocracy at Rome. Um, but you know, one of the things that I found in the text uh, when I insisted on reading it was um, uh, quite a lot of reading, right? um, which is to say the things that Gellius knows, he's not simply copying out of other books. So there's a claim in, in the Attic Nights that um, what he's written are commentarii. This is a Latin word that defies translation. You can see it's the root of our English commentary. But what commentarii are is a little hard to explain. And he says that these commentarii are based on ad notationes, annotations, perhaps. So there's a sense that this is worked up from notebooks. It's not just notebooks, but it's not quite something finished or complete or sort of formal. Um, what is it? Well, it's a set of facts and then framing information about what to do with those facts or what to ask about those facts or how he came to know them. And what that means is that you get a whole system through these 400 essays of representing um, in little snippets from lots of different facets the act of reading, um, which is you know, one of the central acts that we engage in as classicists and as literary scholars, and is the, the fundamental way, of, obviously, of relating to textual and to literary culture. And Gellius is really fixated on it. In fact, he's one of our richest sources for the practice of reading in antiquity. Um, there's also, uh, I think, a dense, particularly Roman kind of globality, which is to say, um, you know, as John alluded to, this is a time of kind of great extent and stability for the empire, which means there's people from all over the place coming to the great intellectual and economic centers of the empire. So you go to Athens, and there's people from all over the Greek-speaking world in Athens. You go to Rome, and there's people from all over both the Greek and the Latin-speaking world in Rome. And something that seems to be at stake for Gellius and his friends is who of these people get to be authentic Greeks? Who gets to be an authentic Roman? So he tells the story of going to a party with his rhetoric professor, a man called Julianus. And at the uh, party, as is so often the case, are some rich Greek youths. And uh, that's, problem, that's trouble in several ways, um, principally that they are rich and that they are young. Um, in in Gellius' stories, people like that always get in trouble. And the, uh, the rich Greek youths start making fun of Professor Julianus and saying, oh, well, you're just a rhetoric professor. And you only teach in Latin, which is far inferior to Greek. Latin has never achieved the beauty of Greek poets like Sappho and like Ephron and all these great classic Greek lyric poets. And then they say, and you have a funny Spanish accent. And this is the first we have learned that Julianus is a Spaniard, that he comes from Spain, that he has, and that he speaks in a way, the Latin is, is a Spanish mouth. It says he has a, a Spanish mouth. Um, this is the first we've learned about, of this, about this guy. In other words, he's, Gellius has not noticed this or cared about it. It's something that he only puts in the mouths of, of Julianus' antagonists. And all these charges are quickly rebutted when Julianus puts his um, toga over his head like Plato or like Socrates in the Phaedrus and recites some fragments of early Latin lyric. Incidentally, our only source for these particular fragments of Latin <laughs> lyric, which is why people have fixated on this passage. But what I see here is a, is a really striking and vibrant social moment, right, in which Greek and Latin are put in tension and in which Julianus is forced to defend not only Latinity, but his Romanness by way of his Latinity. And the conclusion of the passage seems to be it doesn't matter where you come from or even what your accent is. If you can come to Rome and speak um, with mastery of the great Latin literary canon, then you are a Roman, and these arrogant youths from elsewhere should, should keep their mouths shut. Um, this is an example of the interplay between sort of fragments, which are the things we've traditionally mined Gellius for, and these social um, uh, 
episodes uh, that, that mark out the text. So, you know, this text is full of characters, and some of these characters are authors. So this is one of our only sources for things written by Tullius Tyro, the slave of the great Cicero. Gellius hates Tyro's writing. Um, then we have real-life characters, like the great Favorinus, sort of flamboyant, um, genderqueer, kind of identity-mixing intellectual and political figure um, who Gellius describes as one of his intimates and who provides a kind of animating force for the, the skeptic energy that underlies dialogue and, as John said, ceremony in the text. And all of this is going on in a, in a context of um, what I would think of as information overload. So in, in this Antonine time period, there are suddenly more books and more libraries and more ways of getting to books than anyone can possibly get to grips with. And there's also a social milieu that's intensely fixated on performing your command of this impossible to command canon. And so Gellius is interested in this problem of how do you deal with this paradox? Um, how do you get to grips with, with too much, as some scholars have called it, with too much to know? And um, I find this to be a, a somewhat relatable and contemporary problem. It's one of the things I've, I've found interesting in it. But I'll just say in conclusion that, that the thing that I think makes the case for the reading of literature from this time period, of authors like Gellius and Gellius in particular, for me as a classicist and someone interested in the Western tradition, is that this is the point where we see most clearly in the classical world, in the classical canon, um, the ancients becoming both subject and object of reading. In other words, we see the Romans and Greeks beginning to form their own ideas about how to read themselves, but not only how to read each other socially in a contemporary moment, how to read their, their predecessors and their ancestors. And in effect, this is the foundational moment for our own discipline. Um, and it's a moment that's, that's fraught with um, uh, reflexivity and tension and anxiety, um, and I think um, you know, offers a lot to, to students, not just of classics, uh, but of the Western tradition. And I hope that, I hope that people will find that um, in the book. Now, we'll hear my interview with Gareth Williams, violin family professor of classics at Columbia University. So I'm here with Gareth Williams, the violin family professor of classics at Columbia. Thanks so much for speaking with me this morning. Oh, that's fine. Uh, so I thought we could start by talking about the history of scholarship on Aulius Gellius, which you outlined at the panel um, beginning with the formidable Leah Frank Holfwitz-Jevons at Oxford. And I was wondering if you could talk about how Joe fits into this history of scholarship and how his work is distinguished from those who've come before him. Well, in the modern era, the um, standard scholarly works on Aulus Gellius really fo um, focus around Holfwitz-Jevons' scholarship. Um, Holfwitz-Jevons is a very formidable Oxford scholar, um, rather conservative in his skill set, but extraordinarily able in that skill set, mm -hmm. um, in the 1980s began systematically publishing on Aulus Gellius and really opening eyes to what had been considered among classicists until about the 80s as um, a very rarefied work that was somewhat marginal. Um, what Holford Strevens did was uh, attempting to show the cultural conversation of which Aulus Gellius was a part um, and in that sense, Alfred Strevens provided penumbra and periphery to the, the sorts of trajectory, cultural trajectory, that Aulus Gellius was, um, uh, was flowing with in the second century CE. Um, Alfred Strevens' work is essentially historicist and contextualizing, putting Aulus in that kind of cultural socio-context. And he's not, in that respect, fundamentally a literary scholar, who is interested in the fullest, most delicate nuancing 
are on a literary front. Therefore, Holford Strevens's work provided a wonderful platform for work that could go in different directions in its own constructedness. And as time went on, after the new century, a different generation came in, thinking more broadly about literary tendency beyond the first century CE into the second century CE. And in many ways, this was a proliferation within classics itself, moving away from the um, highway of the Augustan era in the late first century BCE into the first century CE and beyond into the Antonine Age. And in terms of Aristoteles, two books appeared in the late um, 2000s, um, uh, both in the same year, in fact. Um, one was Witzer Kulin's Gellius the Satirist, a very clever book, but it was particular in its emphasis, really trying to inject the literariness that Holford Strevens didn't quite so represent. And the title says it all. Gellius was portrayed by Kulin as a satirical viewer of society and literary practice and attitudes, obviously not playing for laughs as such, but softly satirical, um, a very humorful view of a literary picture and a literary climate. Um, the book was good, but it was particular in its focus. Um, the same year, a book came out by Eric Gunderson, a much more eccentric book that in some ways tries to replicate the spirit of um, Gellius's own writing. It's a miscellany, uh, Gellius's work, a huge miscellany of um, fairly small anecdotal um, sections on literary practice, culture of the age. And what Gunderson tries to do is to reproduce that. Um, it's a high-risk strategy because some people will applaud, others will unapplaud. <laughs> Gunderson's writing is also rather precious and extremely singular and idiosyncratic. Um, and if what was needed was a literary work that would really delve deeply into the literariness of Gellius's writing, Gunderson's work was too idiosyncratic really to supply that. Mm. And Kulin's was good, but too particular fully to provide that. Mm -hmm. So this creates an interesting opening. And the significance of Joe Howley's book is that it really attends to the historicist caste, that is the legacy of Holford Strevens, but it much more fully represents the literary angle that was not really adequately provided for at all by Kulin's book and by Gunderson's book. And so what the Howley um, project really is, is designed to fill a vacuum in the scholarship, which is very glaring, plus bringing to the study of Alice Gellius all the refinements and the sophisticated methodologies that now characterize Latin literary study from the first centuries BCE and CE. And in that respect, it is the full package work, um, bringing a very sophisticated um, a la mode view of Latin literary process generally to bear on the Antonine Age and to Gellius in particular. And I fully expect that this book really will set a new platform for future scholarship, certainly with an emphasis on the literary angle, which is now, of course, very important. Right. Full stop. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was wondering maybe if we could, if you could expand a little bit on this idea of how um, Joe, what did you say, brings out the flavor of Gellius writing in the book, uh, which speaks more to this literary angle that you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, one way of thinking about the miscellany project is to think of a miscellany as a vast collection 
of viewpoints, attitudes, commentary on literary culture, all of which needs to be synthesized and packaged into a single vision of what literature is in the Antonine Age. Mm -hmm. That might be called the centripetal approach to a text as complex as ours. I would suggest, however, that what Joe Howley does is, while showing full respect for the centripetal collective approach to a miscellany, he also has a very fine eye for the centrifugal approach, which is to see that the miscellany is designed to be outward-looking, messy in its margins, difficult to pin down and package, mm. and in that sense resistant to a single overview um, viewpoint. Um, it's multi-directional and designed to show Gellius not trying to package the cultural age or the literary age, but in a sense trying to think far more creatively about the difficulties of summing up a literary age, looking at the anomalies within the age, things that don't fit, things that are contradictory, tensions, um, because obviously Gellius is sensitive enough to realise that there is no such thing as a straightforwardly packageable cultural epoch. Right, right, right. Yeah, um, and when you spoke about the, the musicality and acoustics of the text, are you referring to this idea of messiness and centrifugality? Because as a musicologist, I was... Uh, my interest was piqued when you used that word, and I was wondering mm. how it applied here mm. um, in the discipline of classics and this literary idea. Well, my answer there will disappoint you in one way, <laughs> and it will please you in another way. Okay. Um, there is a great musicology and acoustic emphasis. Um, he quotes verse a lot, especially verse, mm. and he often quotes verse um, you know, with, with an acoustic ear obviously an acoustic ear, for um, <laughs> hearing the sound of the Virgil, etc., etc. And in that sense, uh, there's a very polyphonic emphasis to verse not as just something that is read and appreciated in silence, but as something that is hourly uh, very importantly pleasurable and didactic. Mm -hmm. But what I meant actually by the acoustic element, um, and perhaps acoustic is not quite the right word, is that the miscellany as a whole buzzes with sound. Mm -hmm. Different voices coming in, different critics speaking up, different viewpoints represented. There's a very strong busyness of sound, viewpoint, quotation coming through the text. Mm -hmm. And what Aulus is doing there is, in a sense, demoting his own voice and promoting a diversity of voices within the text to bring out the idea that it's a plethora, conversational humdrum text that is brought alive by voices. Mm. Um, I mean humdrum in the sense that it takes its start from, oh, let's ask this question today. Um, and then the thing suddenly comes alive with the vocality. That's, that's fascinating and a very interesting way to think about um, modern scholarship because we are doing that, I think. Or one of the aims of modern scholarship is to quote widely and focus on other voices but at the same time find a place for one's own voice and is that what you see joe doing demoting his own voice or or unlike gellius maybe promoting it a bit um it's interesting you say that to my eye modern scholarship will also work on the basis of producing a master narrative in which you might introduce other scholarly voices mm -hmm. But we live in an age where it's very important to promote the authorial voice. Yes. 
And I suspect that a demotion effect will kick in in many scholarly writings where you control the quotation you bring into your text. Yes. Um, and often it has an edge to it in the sense of not just controlling voices, but controlling judgments, <laughs> because you're trying to steer an argument in a piece of writing. I would suggest that while, of course, there's artistic control in what Gellius is doing, mm -hmm. um, I like a certain openness to alternative viewpoint um, and a relish for the kind of competitive voice Whereas I suspect that in the modern age we live in a much more controlling view of the competitive voice. I see. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's interesting, and maybe this gets to another question that I had. Um, the, the way in which one packages literature in this age, or doesn't, and then how you were talking, you were speaking at the panel about a methodology for cultural analysis, and I think um, we've talked about how Joe's methodology for cultural analysis is this outward-looking one. Uh, and maybe, what am I trying to say, sorry? His methodology is less, um, is more constrained by what's going on today and these, um, the necessity of thinking about the, um, authorial voice and the control of judgment. Yeah. Joe's voice. Joe's voice, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think it's an interesting challenge now for anyone writing this kind of book. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, a scholarly book now, especially with a you know, prestige press such as Cambridge, mm -hmm. there are particular orthodoxies that we all have to abide by, and, right. and it's interesting. One of the most interesting aspects of Alice Gellius is the unexpected element. Uh, the progression of the books, um, it takes strange turnings, it um, brings in interesting characters, um, and there is an eye for the unexpected. And I quite see the point you're making, um, the tension between the formal protocols of the modern scholarly book yes. and the more ad hoc diversity of the kind of work that Gellius is producing. The difference being there were no fixed paradigms for Gellius to follow. No, of course not. <laughs> and there are many fixed paradigms that Howley has to follow. Yes. Um, and another completely different vantage point on Joe's book would be to look at the differences of genre and format mm -hmm. from antiquity to the modern day um, and to see how, in a sense, there's a very creative tension played out by Joe um, in the formalism of his book, um, actually trying to capture the, let's call it, a-formalism of Gellius's book. Right. Mm. Yeah. Could you say a little bit more about how you think Joe does that and the successes that he encounters or the struggles that he encounters? Yeah. Um, one fundamental um, formalizing aspect of Joe's book mm -hmm something that is actually used um, fairly often by classicists in very creative ways is to offset a Gellius, to show what Gellius is doing in all sorts of ways, um, in terms of selectivity among his sources, etc. You find an antithetical paradigm or something to push against. Mm -hmm. In his case, um, uh, Plutarch offers one example of that, and especially the elder Pliny, um, very prominent encyclopedist writer of the first century CE, um, Pliny offers a very useful touchstone and point of contrast to expose and show to best advantage aspects of 
uh, Gellius's selective use of a vast hoard of literary treasures. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how that dyad effect actually throws light not just towards Gellius, but then reflexively back onto Pliny as well. Sure. And Joe does achieve a wonderful acrobatic act in a sense of, while writing primarily about Gellius, by using the prism of Pliny, he then throws light back onto the Pliny as well. Um, and it's uh, an interesting intellectual trajectory to use, um, a methodology that has a payoff, not just in the Gellian direction, but also in other directions. Yeah, maybe we can, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe we can turn this way um, and think about this methodology for cultural analysis which can be used not only to look at these cultures of antiquity, not specifically just Gellius, but also Pliny, but um, later cultures as well. Because you mentioned that Joe's book not only points back, it also points, well, in multi-directions forward being one of them. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about how you see this methodology transferring into later cultures. Yes. Um, one of the most interesting rivulets that comes out of Joe Howley's book is um, the question mark of the later tradition, because Gellius became extremely influential in later ages. Um, late in the book, he does a light upon Montaigne, much to my delight. <laughs> um, and there is a strong, in Montaigne, there is a strong miscellany element as well, the selectivity of a life view and taking um, uh, slices of life and dealing with them. Uh, not with the kind of literary programmatics um, and literary driving force that is so generative in Gellius, um, but the miscellany instinct is one of the most interesting importations into the later tradition from Gellius. Um, and the task of actually offering coverage of that, um, especially when one gets to the Renaissance, uh, people like Poliziano who did write a miscellany, at least one miscellany, two miscellanies, um, the impact of Gellius is very profound. The task of accounting for that growth of miscellany culture, however, obviously is very large. And if Joe tried to incorporate that material significantly into his book, the risk would be of shrinkage on the Gellian end. Sure. And so I think as a creative choice, it was a good idea not to try to bring in that material because the danger would be that the Nachleben would actually um, cloud over um, and add disproportionately to the um, calibration of the book sure. when Gellius really does need treatment on his own. It's a very interesting book, thinking about how we can use it to think about not only the creation of miscellanies, how people would come to write them, how we can uh, come to write about them, but also thinking about reading and the sound of reading versus the silent reading, which is a question I encounter quite a lot in my work as a medievalist. How did people read? Well, did they read aloud? Did they read silently? And if they were reading silently, were they hearing things inside? And so um, I'm very grateful for this book and it's the questions that it's raising will be useful to me, which in the Middle Ages is somewhat in in scholarship, we think of it as somewhat close mm. to the, to antiquity, but also in later later cultures and groups. So, mm -hmm. yes. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Joe Howley's Aulus Gellius in Roman reading culture, text, presence, and imperial knowledge in the Noctis Atticae. 
I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Suleiman Bashir Diyanya's book, Open to Reason, Muslim Philosophers in Conversation with the Western Tradition. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.